All right, just so we kind of keep it like straight and narrow. Yep. Um, and so on. But I think it'll be very good. And I mean, really, it's going to be all about your family heritage, which I think to me is incredibly important because you bring a, just an incredible story. And, uh, and we, I want to truly capture that for you. Thank so you. if we can do that, yeah, that would be awesome. Amen. So, but putting E1 on the map, I mean, we can talk about that real quick. So okay. go ahead, bro. So um, uh, my uncle Paul, who he's unfortunately deceased also, um, he got on in 69, I think it was, in Boston. Um, him and, you ever hear Leo Stapleton? Of course. For, Kamish. Right. So him and Leo Stapleton were basically best friends. Um, Stapleton worked <coughs> with my grandfather, my Uncle Paul's father, who's also Paul. Um, and they all got along and et cetera, et cetera. So in the late 70s, early 80s, my Uncle Paul was part of something called Project Fires. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No. Um, I'm not even going to try to explain it. It's way too long. But anyway, Boston, you know, was uh, a poor city at the, at the time. You know, the apparatus was falling apart. They needed equipment. The city didn't have any money. So Commissioner Stapleton uh, basically reached out to my Uncle Paul and was like, hey, you know, what can you do? And uh, he was at that point a lieutenant ladder 13. Ladder 13 got disbanded. He went to ladder 17. And he ended up becoming the safety officer for the city, aside from being, you know, a line officer in the company. So he uh, found E1. I don't know exactly how he ended up with them, but reached out to them and basically put the Ford cab over E1 engines in Boston. You know, you could put them in your back pocket. Then Ladder 17 got the very first E1 rear mount single screw 110-foot stratosphere aerial that they were building with the low jack spread. So to field test it, Ladder 17 went to every working fire in the city wow. to, see, to see where they could put it. Yeah. They make it a half. I don't know. I was like six years old. But um, I remember as a kid, uh, my Uncle Paul being in my parents' kitchen, so him and my father going over apparatus drawings and, you know, what about this, what about that? You know, because it was always a tiller town. They had, uh, you know, two Sutphin aerial towers at one point, but um, it was all tiller trucks. So E1 came up with, a, you know, the great, you know, extruded aluminum aerial product. Yeah, absolutely. And that underslung uh, outrigger design, from what I'm told, was my Uncle Paul's design. Yeah. Um, so he got them on the map. And then he helped develop the... Uh, prototype to the first pass device. I actually have got newspaper clippings uh, of him wearing it. It's just a big metal square box with an on-off switch. Uh, the impact liners and the Connors leather helmets, he helped develop those. The Black & Decker Sunlance, which then became the Sunlance Survival Light, yep. all the field testing for those. He'd bring them to the firehouse, have like 20 or 30 of them at a clip, um, freeze them, put them on the grill, go up to the top of the 100-foot aero, throw them on the ground, drive over them, do whatever he could to try to break them and see what they could withstand at all that, that so, in the 80s. So for everybody listening, we're talking with Jack Dewan from Baltimore City Fire, who comes from an incredible line of firefighters. Yeah. Bloodline. I mean, you... And so we had you on the podcast earlier. This is a little extra that we're doing now because the stories that have come out uh, through our conversation and just getting to know you warrant so much more time with you and so we want to talk about your family so i want to jump right back in but i just want to bring people up to speed on who we are sure. who we're to, who we're talking to um and so on so jack give us the little backstory i mean just your your father your uncles brother i mean so um there's 10 firemen and one cop uh in our family bloodline um my great-grandfather john divine uh which there was a whole name change right and whatever um got on boston in 1900 uh, he died active duty, not line of duty, uh, as a captain in 40, I think it was 1944. 
Uh, I wasn't around, so I have no idea. But do you I have think pictures and- I do, um, and actually, uh, they're all on my Instagram page. If you want to creep that later, you can. And there, there's an incredible YouTube video too about his family lineage and and yeah. so on that I watched the other night and I'll share that we'll share that set we'll share that in the posts and so on but um, an incredible thirty something minute video thank you about your family yeah. I yeah, mean it's, it's incre- just, I watched yeah. it twice I was like man this is incredible so but uh-huh. yeah go ahead like the longest response in the ladder <laughs> yeah right well that was right. during the riots yeah yep uh, can you hear me now I <laughs> could. Right, um, so, um, great grandfather got on 1900, uh, died in 44, still on the job. Um, my great, so, uh, uh, my grandfather, his brother, Charlie, his brother, Bill, both firemen. Um, my father, my uncle, Bill, my uncle, Paul, my uncle, Gerard, my cousin, Michael, and myself. And Michael, who's a P- city of Peabody fireman, um, Peabody borders Lynn, Lynn's, uh, they call it the North Shore. It's up north of Boston. Um, Michael's father was the cop. And I don't know if you're big movie buffs or not. Uh, you've seen the movie Black Mass. Uh, yeah. It's yes. about Whitey yeah. Bulger. So my Uncle Frank, uh, sergeant detective in Boston, was essentially you know, hard on the trail of Whitey for years and years and years. Had all the wiretaps. Had all of you know the information to pinch Whitey all the time. But Whitey was a protected FBI informant. So it never stuck. And, um, you know, one of the most honorable cops the Boston police, you know, ever had the privilege to have. And um, there's a whole other story on that side of it, uh, just from uh, my Uncle Frank, who, and he's, uh, he's going to be 80. And he's, he actually ran a 9-11 5K last year. At wow, that's seven, awesome. 79 years old. Um, tough as nails and a total sweetheart gentleman of a human being. But um, so the rest of the firemen in the family, um, like I said, uh, my great, great uncles, uh, Charlie and Bill, then um, my you know, my grandfather, and then as it went along down the line, you know Billy and Paul, who are my regular uncles, and Gerard, who was in New York City. Um, we kind of talked about how that kind of transpired. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but so, most of your family, I mean, you're rooted in Boston, yeah. so a lot of them were yeah. in the Boston area, mm-hmm. right? Yep. But a few of you have ventured outside, right? Um, so you know, all native Bostonians, uh, even my great grandfather, he was first generation born in the U.S., so he was a native of Boston. And then, you know, over time as there were, you know, political agendas and whatnot, you know, uh, my uncle and myself both couldn't get hired, so we ventured out. Right. So Gerard ended up in New York City, got hired first class in 96. Uh, he bounced around. He was in 217 engine. Um, on the rotation, he went to 293. He was at ladder 11. Um, he went to squad 41 on a skin. Uh, he was up there for a while. And us DeWans, we're, we're kind of crazy. Like, we like to see everything. We can't just stay in one place. So he went to uh, 35 Truck in Manhattan for a short time. And when he was there, he met Patty Brown. Right. Um, and Patty Brown invited him to go to Ladder 3. And when Patty Brown asks you to do something, you do it. Wow. So he went to Ladder 3 and um, became great friends with Patty. And uh, they were in different groups because the, the vacancy wasn't in Patty's group at that time. So, um, you know, with guys transferring or retiring or however the vacancies occurred, uh, the official first tour together in the same group was on 9-11. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Um, they, I mean, they would hang out and everything, you know, all summer long. And, you know, there was all sorts of stories that had come out that, you know, we've, we don't have enough time in the day to go over all of them. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's guys out there like uh, like Tim Brown and Chris Brown who were on thebravest.com. Mm-hmm. They were friends with Gerard and friends with Patty and um, – Tim and this other guy, Steve Gonzalez from Ladder 3, were the guys who actually identified Gerard right. at the morgue after they recovered him the first time. Wow. 
Wow. Because he was recovered more than once. Wow. Um, so <coughs> the... Uh, I mean, I, I think yeah. that's where we're headed, right? You know, we, we were talking about this off camera, and I wanted to get back on camera with you with sure. this because, you know, such a family and such a bloodline and so on, and, and the fact that your family has had tragedy, yeah. you know, and you have a line of duty death of September 11th for your uncle Gerard. Um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit, maybe yeah. that experience um, sure. and so on. Cause I, I think so much comes out of it in so many different ways. You know, when we talk about experiences like this and I know just in this room alone, I have uh, you know, Testament Memorial to Dana Hannon who uh, right. was on 26 engine that day, originally from 34 truck, but he was on his, right. uh, you know, rotation, rotation schedule. And so, um, you know, he happened to be on 26 engine that day and being on 26, which makes it a real small world, which you and I were talking about before, mm -hmm. uh, another gentleman by the name of Paul Tegmeyer yep. was riding 26 that day with yep. Dana. I don't think they knew each other. I knew both right. of them, which is interesting. Um, Paul comes from the Poughkeepsie Hyde Park area up in okay. New York where Rob is. Yep. And uh, his name was highly spoken by all the guys up in that area yeah. um, and so on. So it was just... An interesting, uh, interesting story for me to know that two gentlemen that I know and that were highly regarded by people that I respect um, were together that day. Yeah, and I just you know it's stories like that that you know we talk about quite often here when we talk about nine eleven. We, we I think people outside of the Northeast um, are a little more removed from it than Definitely. than all of us. Yep. You know, we witnessed it, we saw it, we lived it. We know people that were you know, their lives changed and greatly impacted from that day. Um, you know, and it was a long time ago, but it still feels like yesterday type yeah, of thing. I mean, for those who, of us who are intimately involved with it, yeah. not necessarily on scene, but who yeah. know, experienced it the way we did, you really can't describe it. Um, I mean, I was 20, I ju was just turning 22 when that happened. Um, I had four years in the fire department. Um, you know, life was good, essentially. Sure. And, um, I was actually working EMS that day uh, when AMR was huge, when they had like taken over the world. And I was working in the city of Milford, Massachusetts. And um, it was a normal day tour. And uh, it was kind of weird. <clears throat> I was working with this guy, Greg Boucher, which I haven't seen or heard from in 15 years. I hope he's doing well. But um, we were leaving Milford Hospital and we were listening to 94.1, which is a Providence radio station. The ACDC was playing. Why I remember this, I have no idea, but I do. Um, so his cell phone rang and I could hear his wife screaming through the phone. I'm like, what's her problem? Yeah. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, oh, he goes, no, some, uh, like a helicopter or a plane or something crashed into the world trade center. And I'm like, Boston and New York. He's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the Boston world trade center is directly across the Harbor from Logan airport. I used to work as a deckhand on the spirit of Boston there years ago. I was like, you know, it probably wiped out all my friends. He's like, Oh, I don't know. And she's, she's like, no, 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 the, the one in New York City. I'm like, well, there's two. They're, they're like 110 stories tall. And, you know, growing up in a fire department family, if you're a buff, everybody knows about the World Trade Center. So I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, I got to see this. So we get back to quarters, back the ambulance in, walk into the day room. And I don't know, however many minutes later it was, walk into the TV room and the second plane was hitting. And I'm like, ugh. I was like, this is not an accident. Right. And um, my father worked his 24 the day before. And he was working his part-time job as a concierge at, at this uh, luxury apartment building complex in Brookline. And there was no TVs <clears throat> where he was. And everybody had those info pages like we were talking about before. Right. And all the crazy texts, half of it was true. Who didn't know what was going on? You know, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, trying to make phone calls. All circuits are busy now. All circuits are busy now. And it's like, just, I want to make a phone call. 
you know, not realizing the mag, like you can see what's going on on the TV, but you didn't really understand the magnitude of what was going on from what, cause I'm in Massachusetts. This has happened, you know, 200 miles South in Manhattan. Yeah. And, um, so I finally get through to him, dad, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. He goes, all I have is the pager. I'm trying to make phone calls. You know, I was like, well, is Gerard working? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And I knew he was in Manhattan cause I knew he was at ladder three. Yeah. Right. And, uh, so they're probably operating, you know, obviously they're not going to answer the phone. So he kept trying to call the firehouse, you know, there was no one there. Um, finally, there was a relocator that was in there. I think it was 59 truck and they were there for a while. They had no idea what was going on and it's not their fault. I mean, the whole world's coming to an end as far as we know. So um, my, um, I'm trying to think how this went. So it worked that tour. Um, AMR actually mobilized a bunch of the ambulances and my ambulance did not get sent and I was furious. I'm like, wearing a noticeable depression on the floor, walking circles around after both towers come down. And we, we, know, we know what's going on, even though you really have no idea. So the following day, I did a day tour in the firehouse uh, in Dudley, where I was still up there. And um, so that was uh, Wednesday. So Thursday on the, was that the 13th, we, my father, my Uncle Bill, who was a Boston fire a lieutenant at the time in Engine 10 downtown, <coughs> him, um, my old roommate, Andy Delisio, who's a Providence fireman, uh, we all got in our cars and we drove to New York. So we started at the apartment where Dry lived in Sean Cummins, who we had mentioned you know, in right. the previous section. <clears throat> he was still at Squad 1 at the time. And uh, we went to the house on 125th Street and Sean kind of gave us a breakdown of what was going on. You know, the dark stuff that you know doesn't usually make it to the newsreels. Right. And... Um, He's like, so what you guys need to do is I'll unlock downstairs and uh, go downstairs, get his toothbrush, get a hairbrush, pair of underwear, put in a Ziploc bag, mark it, you know, um, Dewan, Gerard P, Division One, Battalion 6, Ladder 3, and then bring it to the firehouse. Because we have no idea where anybody is, if we'll ever find them. They could be vaporized, they could be splintered, we have no idea. Um, so as this becomes a prolonged operation, this is going to go on for God knows how long. If they find something, they'll check DNA. We were like, and this was two days later. Like, yeah. you know, that type of information was already being disseminated. <clears throat> it's like, wow. So, you know, that was a huge, you know, I mean, there was, there, I just remember from an outsider looking in, you know, there was still that hope that, uh, you know, in the collapse and in the rubble, we were going to be finding people in the good know, void. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so on. But, you know, when you when you look at, you know, in retrospect, you look at the damage that was done and when everything's powder. I mean, yeah. all I remember that day yeah. was the dust and the paper. Mm -hmm. There was paper, right? And that was, that was pre yeah. being paperless, right? Yeah. So yeah. there was, I mean, I it snowed paper for three days. I mean, it was just, you know, it was like a New York mm -hmm. City ticker tape. I mean, it was crazy. Right. I remember stuff like landing in Brooklyn, I think, that like somebody, I saw a video at one point and it, like paper was still smoldering. Yeah. Like that, and they're like, uh, it was, as us, like, wow. It was incredible. I mean, yeah. incredibly impactful. So, um, so you guys, so you made the trip down, mm -hmm. you gather his belongings. Now I'm right. sure you're trying to get across and into. So we went, um, it was easy getting into Queens because, you know, it's not right. the city as right. a native New Yorker will call it. Um, so then we left Rockaway and went up, you know, Beach Channel Drive to, um, cross to Crossbay Boulevard going through like, um, uh, Woodhaven and everything and going up to try to get to Queens Boulevard to go over the, I think we went over the 59th Street Bridge. And it took us almost five hours to get from Rockaway to the firehouse. And Ladder 3 is on 13th Street between 3rd and 4th. Yeah. And um, 
took us forever to get there. 59 truck was still relocated there. And um, I'll never forget, and, you know, even though I had the connection with New York City, you know, I didn't work there at the time, you know, and I didn't understand some of the culture there because, again, I didn't work there. You know, I mean, I knew my uncle was there, and we all hear stories about how things go in the firehouse and whatnot. Right. And um, complete zombies, and rightfully so. You know, I mean, these guys were going through stuff that no one had ever imagined before. And, you know, trying to put yourself into that situation, how would you feel if all of a sudden all these unknowns, relatives, start walking up? Hey, have you seen my family? Hey, have you seen my family? I don't know how I would handle that, you know. Um, And uh, so there was that whole personal element of it, aside from operational stuff, that they're still responding to runs. You know, they're still in and out, you know, taking class threes and, you know, whatever else. So they still have to do their job in addition to dealing with all of us coming in, you know, red-eyed and not knowing what to do. So we were there, I don't even know how many hours. And then it was nightfall. We ended up at Union Square where they had a billion candles and, you know, yeah. you know, moment of silence, all this other stuff that was going on. <clears throat> and um, so we stayed and uh, ended up I'm trying to think of how this went, which usually I have no problem telling the story, but for some reason I'm having a block. Um so we go back to Massachusetts and we go back and forth a bunch of different times and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, are there things being found? Are they not being found? Is there paperwork? Now, I was only 22, so I didn't have a total administrative involvement in much of this. Right. You know, there were family meetings that I didn't have to go to because, quite frankly, I was 22 years old working two full-time jobs and living 40 minutes away from the rest of the family. I had my own stuff I had to take care of in addition to, you know, whatever my father would tell me. Of course. <clears throat> um, because it wasn't my place to be making any decisions. I was a nephew, you know, yeah, still blood, but I'm not crucial to the operation. So, you know, family would do whatever the family was doing and, you know, I would hear what was going on and that was that. Well, we decided that we didn't know if he would ever be found because let's face it, there were tons of people who weren't. And, um, excuse me. So we had the original memorial service, October 27th of 01, nobody. Um, so it was just, you know, visitation, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, that was essentially the big one. And if you ever read Leo Stapleton's book, DFC, there's a firefighter funeral on the cover. That's my uncle's funeral. Is that right? Wow. Um, Boston treated it as if it was one of their own. um, Because unfortunately, and we all know the stories now, there were four, five, six, seven, ten funerals a day. And, you know, and like you heard guys talk about back then, if it wasn't for the out-of-town guys, they may have not had anybody there. Yeah. Because you couldn't stretch so many guys in so many places it was you know it's physically impossible those are you know those are the stories that i didn't i don't think people outside of the area particularly understand um everything from what you were saying you know i mean you had you had firehouses that lost everyone working that day and yet the guys that came in had to entertain the public right the public there's big outpouring of support for the firehouses right right but they're dealing with their own grief the Mm -hmm. grief of all the families and the general public. Yeah. I mean, I, I, cu- I couldn't even imagine, right? And then on top of that, you know, the realization that we, were, we went from a search and recovery to nobody's, nobody's getting out of here alive right. type yeah. thing within 24 to 48 hours. That realization came out. Yeah. And now you're talking about thousands of people. And it's just, you know, to me, if you, you know, outside of this area, I don't know how, I don't know how you digest that like we did here. Um, for right. you... And where I want to go with this, Jack, is um, you know, uh, you're a, you're a family of firefighters, right? Have you've never had to deal with 
line of duty before, correct? Right. I mean, not, this is not in not our, our family, right. no. Right. So for you guys, I mean, all of you coming from the job and mm-hmm. all of you being surrounded by people on the job, it had to be tough. I mean, it had, to, it had, and I don't mean that, you know, yeah. I, I mean, you would think that like, oh, this, you guys would have to be more prepared and this and that, but I can't Nobody's imagine. Prepared. No, Nobody's I know. Prepared. I know. Yeah. You don't understand oh, yeah, what yeah. I'm getting at, right? right? Like, I don't know how to, how else to say it, but I mean, it's just, I'm interested to understand the dynamic of, I mean, I just, I, I, I couldn't imagine. And, and so something of that scale, not only is it, you know, a horrible situation that you lose a member of your family in the line of duty, mm-hmm. but when it's surrounded by such tragedy on, on a, a global scale, scale right? Yeah. I mean, that kind of just makes it even compounded even to it a bigger numbing. Yeah. E- even now. I mean, it's, you know, 18 years later. Right. Um, yeah. And there's good days and bad days. Yeah. Um, like Gerard and I lived in the same room for two years when he was trying to get on. He drove a bus for the MBTA before he was able to get on in New York. And he and I shared my bedroom at my parents' house because wow. my grandparents were deceased. The house got sold. You know, he needed a place to sew. He stayed with us. Yeah. So we were almost like brothers, even though he was my uncle. We were only thir- 13 years apart. So it wasn't a terrible right. age I get gap. it. I get it. So, you know, originally when it all happened, so in because we're in the fire department and the whole family is, I mean, prior to 9-11, every family function, every, you know, Christmas, holiday, it's, you know, oh, yeah, your company's this. And, oh, we took this fight. And it's yeah. all the typical, like, firehouse kitchen table right. in my kitchen right. 24 hours a day. Yeah, I mean, you're surrounded so, by you know, it. Sure. Ball, ball breaking and my company's better than yours and you guys suck and all that type of stuff. So now it was all of a sudden it was a numbing effect because it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's a, a loved one and it's blood, but we still have that operational curiosity. Right. And it's like, where do you draw the line? So you go to the firehouse and it's like, yeah, you're looking for your loved one, but you want to know what was actually going on, but you don't want to ask that question because you don't want to cross a line, but you still have that, well, what happened? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there's so many levels of curiosity. Where do you stop? Where's the line? Well, where, I think too, you want, you want answers that you know you can't get. Right. But something is better than nothing. And it's that yeah. I, I could Im- only imagine the frustration and having to having to tackle that walking in there and, and w- wanting an answer, like knowing, cause you know, right. you know what the answer is, but you right. want to like, you know, and I think for me, like I would want to know that they were like, and obviously he was around the people who, yeah. you know, his brothers, but like, it's just, right. You know, you want to know point, you know, it's yeah. like, we know later on from all the different things that have come about, you know, the phone call that Patty Brown made, you know, three truck, we're still headed up, you know, um, they were on like the 35th floor. They were working their way up. So you can kind of guesstimate because he was in the North Tower. So you can kind of guesstimate as the building is coming down, watching the footage a billion times years later, you get to that point, there's the disconnection. Like you can kind of figure, it's a horrible thing to, to think about, but like, oh, okay, that must have been the point. You know what I mean? Um, I and, do. And I do. it's, you know, there's so many other avenues of thought when it comes to, what you're thinking about when it comes to that personally, emotionally, um, operationally, situationally, you know, he had the irons. Was he forcing the door? I don't know. Guy will never know. Um, you know, was he talking to somebody? Was he taking a hit off his mask? Who knows what they were doing? You know, we don't know. And, and those are all things that, you know, go through your mind. Yeah. Maybe not everybody's mind, but they go through my mind. But they were doing what they love. Right. And, you know, um, I mean, that's, that's the solace, right? Is that, you know, um, nobody, nobody foresaw that day. Nobody foresaw what the outcome was going to be. Nobody could even fathom on a large scale how that yeah. day would have, was going to play out. Um, I mean, there's just no way, but, um, you know, and 
like there's questions that come out and this was really strange. And I had mentioned before how he was found more than once. <clears throat> so the first time he was found was December 8th. Um, sea stairwell, North Tower, about the 40th floor in the building came down. And he was found five stories underground. So the way it was described crudely is that the first time they found him, they found from here to here. Yeah. A few other parts, but basically from there to there in both arms. And his left hand was severed, but they found it right next to him. And he was a marathon runner. Like, he was this guy, like, you could put him on a GQ magazine cover. Like, you know, every chick in the world wanted this, wanted him because he was just that guy. You know, we're all jealous, right? So, <laughs> um, so he had one of those really expensive Nike running watches. And when the coroner's office did their investigation, because they have to inventory things like, I have the tools that were in his pockets, the channel locks, the, screw, wow. the, the screwdriver, um, the box keys. I have all of that. It's in a tin covered, and it's kind of funny. Well, it's not funny, but... Um, well, my, my father had them first and they're in like a, a cookie tin, like those old blue, like your grandmother right. would have. Right. And he covered them in OxyClean cause they stunk so bad. I mean, you know, underground for, you know, a couple of months, you know, surrounded by death. Yeah. Um, to try to get rid of the stench. So I now have them. They're still in the same brown paper bag in the metal tin in a hope chest in a plastic bag. Like, yeah. you know, they get unwrapped maybe once every couple of years, someone, you know, comes over and they want to see it and whatever. And um, next time I'm out this way, I'll try to bring them and I'll, well, I'll show you. But um, anyway, so the watch still had the time on it from when they took the picture on the Polaroid. And it, you know, inventoried the stuff that was in his pockets. Um, so then, kind of off the topic, but on the same topic, um, <clears throat> sorry, Tim Brown and Chris Brown, the guys who ran the Bravest.com, they, uh, so Tim and Steve Gonzalez from out of three were the ones who identified him. So they had done it through dental records because <clears throat> they had his lower jaw. So they organized a police escort from the morgue in Manhattan to Boston. Wow. And it changed jurisdictional police agencies at every border. So NYPD to New York State to Connecticut State to Rhode Island State to Mass State to City of Boston. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so, and then Chris, uh, Tim's brother, who was a Providence thank fireman in the Special Hazards, um, as they were going through Rhode Island, he made whatever phone calls he made, and every bridge or every overpass had Providence companies on it. Wow. Which was amazing. Hold on one second. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, so then we we knew, um, so on the 8th, um, they were recovered. And I say they, it was Gerard and um, David Fontana from Squad One were found together. And here's where... I have a problem processing something because I've spoken with uh, Mark Gregory on several occasions. He was one of my uncle's best friends. Um, and he's made mention that um, Pete, oh my God, I can't remember if um, he's a lieutenant rescue to Pete Martin, that Pete Martin was found with them also. And I've never asked him about it. Um, and I'm going to have to call him and ask him because something just isn't lining up in my brain. But anyway, so they get the police escort to Boston. And um, everybody, everyone in my family always goes to P.E. Murray Funeral Home. It's the same place they go to all the time. So we knew they were coming. So that was the 8th he was found, the 9th he was identified, the 10th he had the police escort. So the 10th that afternoon, uh, early evening, um, they were all up there. So it was you know, Tim Brown and guys from out of three and you know, guys from all over the place. <clears throat> so get to the funeral home, and we're all you know, mulling around doing the normal funeral home stuff. And uh, 
a maroon Chevy Astro van was what was carrying him. And he was still in the Stokes basket covering the American flag. Wow. And um, so, you know, they've got the garage underneath and they bring everything in. So we're all kind of like scattering because, you know, nobody wants to be seen crying. And it's just how it is. You know, we're all crazy like that. So I ended up walking into this room on the first floor of the funeral home. And I really didn't understand how the funeral homes operate because that's not what I do for a living. Right. So all of a sudden the floor starts to raise up and it's just me and him. And I'm sitting, I'm standing there in this room, I'm like jeans and a sweatshirt, you know, because we just were there to, to bring him home. It wasn't the funeral service or anything. And uh, so they lift him up, you know, into the room and there's the Stokes basket with him and the flag over it. And I'm standing there going, and this is probably like a 15 second time span. Like it takes longer to explain it than what actually happened. And I'm like, I want to look under the flag. Do I do it? Do I not do it? Do I do it? Do I not do it? Uh, and I didn't do it. And then I think it was Gonzo, Steve Gonzalez from out of three walks in. He always called me Junior because my father's Jack Dewan Senior. Right. And uh, puts his arm around me. He's like, come on, come on, Junior. You don't want to see that. You don't want to remember him like that. Yeah. Like, okay. And, you know, huge statement, subtly put, I get it. We walked out. That was that. And my cousin Michael turns out had a very similar uh, event, and I'd have to confirm it with him, and I'm sure he'll fact check me when I talk to him later. Um, he was downstairs and had a very similar, like he was alone with him too, wow. um, and he wanted to look and didn't, um, which is probably better for all of us. But um, so that was December of 2001, and then two years later, um, I had just been hired in New York City as a fire alarm dispatcher. And my aunt, my uncle's only sister, was in New York on a um, Massachusetts family of, families of 9-11 trip. You know, they go and visit different places, and they go to the site and, you know, met all sorts of people. And at the very end, they went to the morgue, and they met doctor, whomever it is. And, you know, he explained the process. And, okay, you know, you know, Ms., Mrs. Donch, you know, we've got remains for you. And, okay, you know, they get to my, my aunt, you know, Mrs. Gilligan, we have remains for you. And she's like, oh, no, we've already got him. He's already in the ground in Boston. And they were like, uh, yeah, we've got more. Yeah. And, yeah. Wh and what we didn't know, and it was not of anybody's fault, there was documents that were produced that either you wanted to be notified or you didn't. If you were notified, did you want the remains? And if they found more remains, did you want to be notified again? We didn't know any of that. So nothing ever got signed. Right. So, so they, they notified us because that's essentially what their process was. So we had the original memorial, October 27th of 01. Then we had the funeral, 12, 13 of 01, because then we had them, so we thought, we had some of them, put them in the ground. Then two years later, May of 03, had to do it again. He had, in, in Massachusetts, there's something called the concrete vault law. Once you're in, you're in. They had to get, um, some sort of bill passed through the Massachusetts legislature somewhere. Wow. I don't even know how they do it, but they get them exhumed and then bring up the rest of the remains, put them back together essentially and put them back in the ground again. Um, so there's that, wow. you know, in a wild, I, crazy. I just think, you know, I, you know, we're, we're sitting here and we're, you know, I just, I'm thinking about it and it's like, it's, it's reoccurring, right? Like, you know, we, we talked about Black Friday, or Black, I'm sorry, Black Sunday, right. right? We've talked about all these different events um, in the fire service earlier on yeah. our other show that we did with you. <clears throat> and so when we talk about 9-11 and everybody had to relive this and we constantly, constantly yeah. relive it. Right. You know, you're, 
your uncle passed on one of the biggest days in American history. Yeah. And every single day, something is referred to that day. And it's always going to make you yep. think about that day and, you know, having to having to recover him on numerous occasions and right. going through that process for your loved ones. Mm -hmm. That's tough, man. That's, that's super tough. I can tell you there was at one point, one of the various many times that I ended up at ground zero, I met this guy by the name of, uh, we call his nickname was Thule. He recently passed, I think in the past two years, he was a senior guy. I, I want to say he was in 41 truck, um, tall guy, you know, salt and pepper, blonde hair, mustache. And, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Old, old timer, and he was walking around with his leather helmet on, bless him, <laughs> and only had a proby insert. <coughs> like, he wasn't wearing a regular front, just had the proby right. insert, and like, totally like a joker type guy. And um, so he drove me around on a gator all around uh, the site and explained to me what was going on. And, you know, we went inside the tent house and showed me how the logistical operations was going in there as a depot for tools and equipment and clothing and everything else. And um, he, I was going to, to leave and he brought me back over to where my truck was parked uh, over, uh, I think it was off of Rector Street. Um, anyway, so we go over there and we're, you know, conversing and there was this loud crash. Apparently a, um, uh, like a grappler, like a construction equipment dropped an I-beam. It happens at a construction site at this point, you know? And uh, he's like, you know, that reminds me. I said, what? He goes, something similar to that happens frequently. Just, it is what it is. That happens in construction. And, um, you know, everything's uneven. But he says, the first time I heard that, he goes, it made me think that whatever pain was suffered by civilian firemen, police officer, whomever, when, you know, they met their, their match that day, that steel I-beam weighs God knows how many tons. No, no idea. Right. And it's instant <coughs> squish, done. Right. It's like it's like us stepping on an ant. One second you're here, one second you're not. So he goes, there was no suffering. Right. He goes, so think about that. As much as it's gruesome and there's all these different thoughts and everybody puts things in their head in their own way and has their own opinions, he goes, it was instant. There was no, you know, you're laying in a bed with decubitus ulcers for six weeks, right. you know, you know, right. suffering from whatever. It was here today, now you're not. And um, what a, then, uh, you know. What an incredible story, huh? Yeah. Wow. I mean, thank you, Jack. I mean, I, you know, I, it's welcome. just, it's, I, I think so often we shy away from conversation about this. I think so often in the fire service, we're afraid to talk about this or open up about it. Um, and you know, and that's got its own issues too. Um, the fact that you're willing to share these stories with us that affected your family. And, you know, I, th I think it's a true testament to how in line you guys are with the fire service and how much you love this craft. And, um, and I thank you for being here with us thank and you. sharing a story about your uncle, ladder three, Gerard Duan. Yep. Is it do du it's Duan, right? Duan. Yep. Duan. Yep. Yeah. I as mean, long as you don't call us late for dinner. We right. Yeah. Care. I'm the same way, right. brother. I get it. But, um, I mean, thank you for sharing that story with us. Okay. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to think that, um, you know, putting out information like that and a story like that um, really gives people an understanding about, you know, the other side of what we do and what we deal with. And, yeah. um, and I thank you for that. And thank I think you. a lot of other people thank you for that as well. So My privilege. Yeah. So, Jack, thank you. For Jack Dewan and the guys at National Fire Radio, a little uh, extracurricular conversation. But um, yeah. thank yeah. you, brother. I thank appreciate you. it. My pleasure. Good. Thanks, guys. Take care.